had a wrong motive for doing a good deed. So what is his motive? He is capitalizing David's trouble in order to secure his own advantage. He showed his support to David just in case David comes back as a king again. But he didn't go with David, he just stayed. So just in case, Absalom became the new king. So either way, he was protected. <clears throat> so he is an opportunist and manipulator. So he finds himself in a potential opportunity for promoting himself, and he will do it no matter what the cost is to others. So he's willing to betray his own master to make himself look better. So this kind of deception and betrayal, which we will see more of later, is typical in a time of a civil war when no one could be trusted. So as everyone or maneuver to um, ensure their own positions. So we understand that David is under a lot of stress, but he still is guilty of double wrongdoing. First in treating the faithful Mephibosheth as a traitor, and then rewarding slanderous Ziba. But the one good thing which comes out of this is that God overruled Ziba's deception for good. So David and his followers will provide some food for their journey. So when we face adversity, sometimes we run into people who try to flatter our ego to take advantage of our situation, just like Ziba. And also there are those who see our adversity, adversity, adversity as an opportunity to insult you. The Shimeon of Benjamin, who was related to Saul, did this. So like here. So he come to David, began to curse and throw stones at David. He called him a worthless man, and he speak of David's hands being filled with the blood of Saul and his family. We all know that was not true. You know, David had spare Saul's life over and over again, and he punished the one who confessed to committing a mercy killing of Saul, and others who had murdered his son. Shimei also said in verse 7, The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. That was partially true. David's trouble were brought on because his sin with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. So how David responded to Shimei's curse is worth paying attention to. He said in verse 10 to 12, If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, Why did you do this? My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than is Benjamin? Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told me to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So his broken heart seek neither defense nor excuse, 
nor even compensation for any kinds of his, you know, past righteousness. When Absalom rebelled, no doubt he may have remembered what Nathan said. The sword will not depart from your house. Your very children will rise up in rebellion against you. That was the part of tragic consequences of David's sin, and he has to deal with it. So he had two choices at the moment. Am I big enough to forgive this madman? Or will I down to his level and throw rocks back? <coughs> he didn't throw rocks back. David gives us three reasons for that decision. First, he realized that Shimei was a divine instrument to remind David of his sin and awaken his own conscience. What he said here is that this may be of God. This may be God's doing. God may be saying something to me here, and I need to pay attention to it. I need to listen to it. Second, um, David let Shimei speak because he put the Shimei's problem in perspective. When he considered that he was an adulterer and a murderer who deserved to die, yet God let him live, so why should he complain about some stones and dirt? David also knows that his real problem is Absalom, not Shimei. He is humbled by his real sin. Third, David submits to the will of God. <coughs> David is at another of his, this um, low point of his life, so all he has left is to trust God. In verse 12, he said, It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery. There are three ways to interpret the meaning of the word misery. First, in Septuagint, which is the first Greek translation of the Old Testament, said, look upon my affliction or distress. Second, some um, Hebrew texts use the Hebrew word ayin, which means eye. So eyes are the source of tears. So it can be interpreted as, look upon my tears. Third, the traditional Hebrew text use the word Aaron, which means inequity or guilt. So why is there a difference? Because the Hebrew words for affliction, I, and inequity look very similar and can be easily confused. So many commentators have their own opinions about which meaning is appropriate here. But personally, it doesn't matter to me. What matters the most is that David knows that God's grace can replace our distress, our tears, and our guilt with blessing. He knows that sin inevitably creates misery in his life, yet he still can turn to the God of grace who may yet bless him. Regarding uh, Shimei's cursing, Pastor Kenneth Chapin made an interesting observation. He said, <clears throat> This is an interesting theological view that coming from the hate-filled rantings of an apparent madman might be the voice of God to David. 
the willingness to listen to one's critics and even to one's enemies may be the only way to discover the truth of God. The nature tendency is to surround ourselves with friends who are often reluctant to tell us the things we need to know. This opens the possibility that we may do well at times to listen to people who wish us harm, but tell us the truth. Here again, we see David's willingness to expose himself to God's word for his life and to God's judgment upon his life. So chapter 19:23, when David was returning as a king again to Jerusalem, Shimei asked him for forgiveness. David said, you shall not die. And David promised him on oath. But this is not the end of the story. Let's fast forward to the scene in 1 Kings chapter 2. Now David was on his deathbed. He gives final words to Solomon. Those are pretty much stay faithful to God and kill my enemies. <laughs> David said, And remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Gira, the Benjamite from Bahirin, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Menahem. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. Can you imagine your deathbed you have to do this? It was right for David to keep his promise not to kill Shimei, but David was clear, clearly conscious about Shimei's dangerous character and complaining attitude. So David knew well the powerful influence that Shimei had among Benjamin. So which may be the constant negative force against Solomon and become a danger to the kingdom. So David warned his son against Shimei. In obedience to his father, Solomon restricted Shimei to Jerusalem so he could be watched. However, Shimei overstayed his bound and was executed. So you are one of those people who read a book from the back to see how it ends first. <laughs> Go ahead and read First King chapter one to two, so which is the end of David's life. So while David fled from his son Absalom, he was son three. So we can see how he felt about the whole situation. So let's read together. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver me. But you, Lord, are shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear that the tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. 
from the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Amen. So let's back to Samuel, see verses 15 to 18. <coughs> Meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. Then Cusha, the archive, gave his confidence, went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king, long live the king. Absalom said to Hushai, So this is the love you show your friends? If he's your friend, why didn't you go with him? Hushai said to Absalom, No, the one chosen by the Lord, by these people, and by all the men of Israel, his, his I will be, and I will remain with him. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve the son? Just as I serve your father, so I will serve you. So finally, here we can meet one of David's friends, Hushai. So last week we saw that he agreed to act as an advisor to Absalom to sabotage his plans, while secretly sending information to David. So he's like the 007 of the Old Testament. Yeah. <laughs> Look at this article. He seems appropriate uh, to Sorry, I cannot see. To so review the story of the first influence agent operation on record, this <laughs> operation was set up by King David and is recounted in 2 Samuel 15 to 18. This account is a good deal more uh, circumstantial and detailed than the frequently cited case of Rahab, the safe housekeeper, and Delilah, the penetration agent. I don't know what penetration agent means. <laughs> don't ask me. So, furthermore, besides its historical and human interest, this operation reminds us of, of the um, efficacy of simplicity, audacity, speed, and uh, exploit, exploitation of human frailties in this kind of enterprise. Do you know where this article comes from? You have no idea? It's from CIA website. I am not kidding. It's not fake news. See? <laughs> See? So if you read more about it, go to CIA.gov and search the tale of Hushai the Archive. It's a one-page short article. So my husband asked me, why did you go to CIA website? So I, I have to research for my speech. So he said, what Samuel and CIA? What's going on? But somehow I found this article. So let's see how well Hushai did as a spy. Hushai greets Absalom and pretends he's a lawyer to him. Just like any good spy hides their true intention. But here, everything that Hushai said could have been taken as supporting David. So saying, long live the king, doesn't precisely declare which king. He also said that he will serve the one whom God has chosen. Who is that? That's David. God didn't choose Absalom. But Absalom thought, hey, he was speaking of me. Hushai convinced Absalom that he will serve him without saying he will be disloyal to David. It seems like that was good enough for Absalom. And then Absalom requests advice about 
what he's going to do next. And Ahisophel said, have a sex with your father's concubine. Okay. So he did. So before we dive into this horrible event, we have to see who Ahisophel is. Ahisophel was a counselor of David uh, and a man of great renown for his wisdom. But he betrayed David and became the real leader of the Absalom's rebellion against David. So why did he do that? Because Ahisophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. So many think that he may be trying to repay David back for killing Uriah and destroying his granddaughter's family. When David departed Jerusalem, he left ten concubines behind to keep house. He felt totally secure that they would be respected. Well, not so much with Ahithophel. A son to take his father's wives was death by the law of God. Leviticus 20.10 If man has sexual relationship with his father's wife, he has dishonored his father. Both the man and the woman are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. This was a sin rarely found, even among the Gentiles. So why did Ahithophel give such a radical advice? There are several reasons. First, in ancient words, taking king's concubine symbolized the taking of the king's place of replacing it. So therefore, this was the way of Absalom to let everyone know that he not only replaced David, but also completely repudiated his father. Absalom purposely made a spectacle of his sin so that all Israel would know what he was about. It was also of the fulfillment of Nathan's word in chapter 12, 11 to 12. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. The second reason is, Ahisophel knew that the people who were behind Absalom might be worried that if father and son were somehow reconciled, they would be viewed as traitors. He wanted to totally destroy the relationship between father and son. So this was more a political move than a lustful one. In order to gather the people solid support around Absalom. Third, it also comes from his own self-interest. It is like, okay, David violated my granddaughter, so I'm going to have his women violated. He did it in secret, but I am going to have it done while opening public. My family name was insulted. Now I'm going to destroy his, his name. So ironically, what Absalom is doing is the very thing he took revenge for his own brother Amnon. 
and maybe an unlawfully slavial woman who was not his wife. And now his son is following his father's footsteps. Okay, chapter 17 introduced two military plans. One from, one from Ahithophel and one from Husha. Let's see whose plan is better. <coughs> Ahithophel would like to immediately attack David this very night. He advised urgency. David and his people are grieved and tired. They are vulnerable. So at this point, they probably would have been, would have not even able to put up with any kind of fight against Ahithophel and his army. So he has an accurate understanding on the situation. But who should think that it is better to take time? Don't rush into battle because David and his army are embittered in spirit. David is his strongest at his weakest point, and his men are fierce and experienced fighters. So who shall I play upon Absalom's fear? Who shall I point to Absalom to see the David of the past, which is an amazing warrior, not the David of the present, the fugitive right now? And Ahithophel also think that he can win with a fairly small but effective army of men of his own choice, 12,000 men. But who should think that all the armies of Israel should be gathered? Gathering all the armies of Israel takes time. So in reality, Hushai is buying time for David to prepare and regroup. Ahithophel advised a quick, selective attack against David only, and then the rest will fall into Absalom. By just killing David, we'll uh, save needless bloodshed, so there will be no opportunity for prolonged civil war. So what it implies is that the issue is not really about one army beating another army. The real issue is which man will be left alive, David or Absalom? But who should I think all of David's forces should be eliminated? Ahithophel wants to lead the army, so Absalom doesn't have to go into battle. He just stay home and has sex with his father's woman. <laughs> One interesting thing is that Ahithophel used the pronoun I in all his advice. I would choose 12,000 men. I would attack him. I would strike him with terror. I would strike down only the king. All I, I, I. So why would he have wanted to be personally involved? It seems like his plan is for his own personal revenge. And also, <clears throat> if they win, all the credit goes to Absalom. There was no glory in it for all credit goes to Ahithophel. So there was no glory in it for Absalom. But who should I think <clears throat> Absalom should lead the army? 
In contrast to Anisophel, who shall use the pronouns very skillfully. He said, All Israel be gathered to you, with you. We will attack him. We will fall on him. We will drag it down. So he let Absalom know that we are doing all this together with you and for you. So who shall I cleverly appeal to Absalom's ego and his hunger for military glory and his longing for personal achievement and recognition? By saying so, Hushai is also exposing Absalom to get killed, if you thought about it. So, based on military strategy, many commentators agree that Ahisophel's plan is better. It is bold and has a higher chance of success. But, Absalom and his people decide to resent Ahisophel's idea and adopt Hushai's plan. How come? After first hearing Ahithophel's plan, Absalom wanted to have a second opinion. In human terms, there was no reason for him to do that. Hushai has no proven track record, no reason to be trusted, and no reputation for cleverness or wisdom that Ahithophel had. So but here, God's providence is at work. It did not just happen. God is drafting the circumstances, their decisions, and approvals because the throne of Israel belonged to him. <coughs> Verse 14 said, The Lord has determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahisophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. So God gave the counsel through Hushai to overrule the counsel of Ahisophel. <coughs> it is also an answer to David's prayer in chapter 15, 31, which he said, Lord, turn Ahisophel's counsel into foolishness. So this is the pivotal moment on which the fortunes of David turn in his dealings with Absalom. Then, Hushai followed up. <clears throat> Here he used ancient spy network, which consists of the high priest and another priest and two of their sons and a servant girl to deliver messages to David. Also, because of a nameless woman who arranged a hiding place for the messenger so that Absalom's men are unable to find it. I think Absalom's ego would have been bruised at the thought of being beguiled by a woman. In the Bible, women are often God's means of deliverance. There are several examples, but the best example I like personally is in Exodus chapter 2. The daughter of Levi, nameless, as a son, i.e. Moses. But she cannot keep the baby, so she put him in a basket and, and placed him in the night. Pharaoh's daughter, nameless, saw the baby and asked a slave girl, nameless, to get the baby. 
the daughter of the daughter of Levi, i.e. Moses' sister, asked the Pharaoh's daughter to find the nursing mother for the baby. So she said, okay. So Moses' sister brought a nursing woman, i.e. Moses' mother, to care for the baby. So this is the starting point of life for the future deliverer of Israel, Moses. Pharaoh acted wisely and set up a plan to eliminate all Hebrew boys by spare girls because he thought that girls are harmless. Yes, we are harmless. <laughs> <laughs> However, Moses' mother planned his survival against all odds and dangers. Moses' sister boldly played her part to organize Moses' upbringing. And Pharaoh's daughter responded in compassion and risked the fury of her father in saving a Hebrew boy. What was perceived by many to be a womanly weakness, i.e. their emotion, is strong enough to um, prompt these nameless women to defy the order of the Pharaoh. So in the Bible, a nameless woman is not meaningless or worthless. It is quite the opposite. So don't be discouraged by their brief appearances. It doesn't matter who has a bigger role or smaller role. What matters is through them, what kind of message did God want to deliver? The first Corinthians 127 said, God chose the foolish thing of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So in this scene here in chapter 17, we can see everyone cooperate together to in service toward a common goal, which is giving their king his rightful place. If one link has been missing, David would have become Absalom's victim. They are all God's instrument. So while all of this is happening, I just realized that his counsel was rejected. So he hanged himself. He is like the Judah of the Old Testament. Both of whom betray God's anointed one and subsequently commit suicide by hanging themselves. Meanwhile, uh, Absalom had made Amasa head of army. Amasa is David's nephew and nephew and son of David's sister Abigail. And the commander of David's army is Joab. Here. And is son of his uh, David's sister, Luria. They look, they make him like a man, but it's a sister. <laughs> so, here, David's son, Absalom, is fighting against father. Nephew is fighting against uncle. Cousin fighting against cousin. What a family. <laughs> As David and his man are preparing for battle, with his son Absalom, God sends comfort and refreshment to David through three of David's old friends. 
They are men, they are men whom David has shown kindness to in the past. And now they reward David for the, his kindness. So in this chapter we saw David's enemies and traitors, but also friends and supporters. And David's kingdom is under attack, but also it is under God's protection. In chapter 18, finally, the battle begins. The fighting between David's army and Absalom's takes place among the forests of Ephraim. So here, uh, Absalom came into Jerusalem, so David flee all the way to Mehadam, and now fighting again here, Ephraim. David's men realized that it is foolish to allow their king in battle because if David is killed, it will be game over. So they tell David he would not go into this battle. And he listened to them. But David instructs Joab not to hurt Absalom. It is a father's affection for his child. David's army fight bravely so Absalom's forces suffered a great defeat. As Absalom was escaping, his beautiful hair was caught in the branch of a tree. So he was left hanging from the tree. Joab made sure that Absalom caused no further trouble by killing him. David heard the news and mourned for the loss of his son. So there are several ironies in this chapter. First, Absalom wants to kill his father, David. But David wants to kill the warriors, but not his son, Absalom. Absalom's hair was his source of great pride, but it became the means of his death. See, the beautiful hair? <laughs> He looked, at, looked like a Middle Eastern version of Fabio. <laughs> <laughs> if you want this for your screensaver, I can imagine. <laughs> the, monument, the monument of Absalom was meant to commemorate his fame, but now it perpetuates his infamy. As a king, David gave only one command, which was rudely ignored by Joab and his men. David abused his kingly power to take Bathsheba, but here he was powerless to save his own son from the hands of his own men. The news of victory produced grief and mourning instead of joyfulness because of great sorrow of David for the death of his son. It was a sad triumph. Last week we saw that it was Joab who had orchestrated and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. And it was Joab who arranged the meeting between David and Absalom. Yet, it is Joab who killed Absalom here. It was Joab who had righteous Uriah killed in battle without questioning David's order. And now it was Joab who killed treacherous Absalom in direct violation 
of David's order. Interestingly, David is king, but he's not in control here. Joab is in control. He's the one who does the deed and calls the shots. In the next several weeks, we can see more of his actions. By the way, I told you earlier and that on his deathbed, David told Solomon to kill my enemies. Joab was one of them. So many commentators draw out lessons from these chapters, such as godly parenting, not indulgent parenting like David, or discerning of good or bad friends, and what you reap is what you sow, and warning of reality and consequences of sin, assurance of God's faithfulness and sovereignty. I hope you all have seen this in our reading. But here, I want you to think about two things. The last verse said, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. He went, he said, oh my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh Absalom, my son, my son. Can you feel his pain? David called Absalom's name five times to express his sorrow and grief. If you have lost a child, you understand his sorrow and heartache. Especially it's your fault. In a way, Absalom dies because of David's sin. If sinful David mourned loudly about the death of his rebellious son like that, then imagine the painful heart of our God the Father, who faced the death of his only son Jesus, who was sinless and obedient. We always focus on Jesus' suffering, that's good, but what about the Father's suffering? Have you ever thought about that? Another thing I want you to think about is the relationship between David and Absalom. When I think about Absalom, I can't help but thinking about the prodigal son. You know that story. In Luke 15, Jesus told the story about the father whose son demanded his share of inheritance and left to live in a far off country. He lived a life of self-indulgence and returned home broke and broken. But when his father saw him, he was filled with joy and compassion. So he forgave him and restored him to full sonship. So what if? What if David has done that to Absalom? For three years, Absalom stayed in Geshur. Can you imagine Absalom's joy when Joab showed up and said, Hey, your father asked me to bring you home. But when he come back, there are no cry for forgiveness, no cure for repentance, no joyous reunion, no explain, explanation whatsoever. Then 
David didn't even want to see him for another two years. This is neither a real punishment or nor neither forgiveness. David loved Absalom, but his stubbornness kept them apart. David deserved to die of his sin, but God's mercy, God showed his mercy and forgave him, but David refused to do that to his own son. So regarding reconciliation between parent and child, always, always parents have to be a bigger person to initiate reconciliation. Whether your child accepts your offer is not up to you, but it's up to parents to initiate reconciliation and forgiveness first. We should not allow the hurts of yesterday to control our life today and tomorrow. Colossians 3.13 said, You must make allowance for each other's faults and forgive the person who offended you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. I know. We can do it. Oh. Yeah. Thank you.